Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A lot of people strive to be great at what they do, at their jobs, at being a parent, at being a friend, a spouse. And you will hear people from time to time admit, I'm a perfectionist or I've got to resist my perfectionist tendencies. Author Will Store argues those tendencies are not incidental. They are emblematic of our age. One of the definitions of perfectionism is it's people who are sensitive to signals of failure in the environment. So I began to wonder, kind of, what is it in the environment that's kind of causing us all, to, you know, to feel like failures so much? And I guess that was the beginning of the journey, which it really becomes a sort of investigation into culture and the power of culture to kind of make us who we are. This is an age, Store says, in which visions of the perfect body or life or personality or relationship they loom large. And we often hold ourselves responsible for both the good luck that befalls us and the grand successes that almost inevitably elude us. Individualism is amazing, but it's also dangerous. I mean, I think it's important not to sacralize it and become kind of almost religious in our thinking about defending individualism. It's also really dangerous because on the one hand, it's saying, yes, you're an individual. You have all this potential. Go and just achieve your dreams and go for your life. You know, that's the that's the great American message. And it's certainly spread around the West. But the underside of that is if you don't succeed and let's face it, the far more common story for most people is failure after failure after failure. We know, we, we know the success is the exception. If you don't succeed and you don't become Beyonce and you don't become Michael Jordan, the individualism this idea points to this idea that, that it's your fault. You didn't want it badly enough. You didn't try hard enough. You didn't reach for your dreams with sufficient vigor. And that's when the problems start. Store is the author of Selfie, How We Became Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. He says the problems range from eating disorders to depression to suicide. In America, the suicide rate has risen rapidly over the last couple of decades, and it now sits at a nearly 30-year high. And that is despite the massive use of antidepressants, which have skyrocketed in popularity since the early 1980s. One in 50 Americans took antidepressants in the early 80s. Now that number, one in 50, is closer to one in nine. In his book, Storr investigates the role of the self in culture and how it's changed over time and how our increasing drive towards perfectionism has also made us increasingly self-focused. Because if you want to achieve your dreams, you've got to understand exactly where you come up short. He believes this is a moment unlike any other, but it may not be that way for the reasons that you think. For a moment, though, let's pull back. Why do we have these striving tendencies in the first place? Why do we focus so much on ourselves rather than on the group? Store says you've got to go back to ancient Greece. Aristotle believed that all things in nature were on this kind of natural path towards perfection and human beings were part of that uh, thing. And, he, and he, you know, he argued that in order to achieve perfection, humans had to, ha had to exist in this ennobled state of self-love, which is just an extraordinarily modern thing to think. So, you know, education and debate and reason become ways of achieving status in ancient Greece. What shaped this early individualism, some scholars argue, may have been something that was completely out of the Greeks' control, their landscape. There was a really interesting thing about the ecology of ancient Greece. So it, you couldn't be a farmer because the landscape is rocky and the, and the soil's very poor. Uh, so in order to get along and get ahead, you had to be a small business person. You had to make you know, dry animal hides or make olive oil or be a fisherman and go out and start trading with each other. So basically, you've got to be a hustler. And so from this kind of very individualistic landscape come all these individualistic ideas. 
But of course, landscapes vary. So you had Aristotle wandering around ancient Greece talking about the individualist perfection. And then at the same time, you had Confucius going, you know, going around in, in China. And, and China was completely the opposite. It's very isolated. It's a landscape of plains and low hills. And so how they were getting along and getting ahead in East Asia were there were farmers doing wheat growing or rice growing, which is very labor intensive, uh, or, or these huge, magnificent irrigation projects they were involved with. So to get along and get ahead in East Asia, you had to be a member of a group, and the group had to all work together to survive, so they had to keep your head down and not privilege the individual. Scholars still find some of these differences between Eastern and Western cultures. How much value is placed on the group, how much popularity amongst young people is intertwined with individual aggressiveness, and how much shyness and being reserved is celebrated. At least in the West, though, Aristotle's ideas won the day. And Storr says that has been especially true since the Industrial Revolution, when a few ordinary folks started making massive amounts of money. And it made people think, if you wanted it enough, maybe you could get it all. That's certainly what Alyssa Rosenbaum believed. Rosenbaum grew up in Russia, but she hated the collectivist ideas that came in with the Russian Revolution. And she left for America a few years later where she spent time in Hollywood, and she got jobs as a movie extra and as a screenwriter. Then she started writing novels. And for many Americans, those books redefined their sense of self. And they start becoming successful, and and then she takes on a pen name, and the pen name is Ayn Rand. And of course, lots of people have heard of Ayn Rand, but I, I think what lots of people don't understand is just the extraordinary influence that she's had over our culture today. Ayn Rand influenced people like Alan Greenspan, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, who met regularly with her in his younger days, and Nathaniel Brandon, the father of the self-esteem movement, a movement which author Will Storr knows well, and which he says you shouldn't really put a lot of stock in. I'm 43 now, so I'm very much a Gen Xer, and I was brought up just in the thick of this idea that, you know, if, if you had something wrong with you, if you were depressed or anxious or you were misbehaving, the answer always reduced to low self-esteem. You didn't love yourself enough. That was a problem with everybody who was, you know, had anything wrong with them. You know, you, you know, you need to learn to love yourself, man. And it was only when I started researching this book that I really realised that this is actually a false idea. It's just not true when social psychologists do this research into the effects of self-esteem. It actually um, it doesn't have all these kind of amazing effects. So, so one of the things I wanted to do was explore how on earth this lie came to kind of spread around the world. And, and I discovered that actually it was literally a lie. That, that So just in brief, the story is there's this guy, um, John Vasconcellos, who's a very powerful California politician in the 80s, but a bit of a hippie too. So he, he pitched this idea of this three-year task force to investigate self-esteem because he decided that really in order to become amazing and to get rid of all these problems we had like homelessness domestic violence gang warfare was a big problem in california at the time and you know Mm. teenage pregnancy there's a bit of a moral panic about in order to kind of cure all these problems we had to raise self-esteem everybody had to learn to love themselves and Mm. of course when he announced this thing and he managed to get you know three quarters of a million dollars worth of funding for this thing and when it was announced it was just ridicule like johnny carson was doing stand-up routines about it the new york times were just completely dismissive and Vasco's obviously furious and, and, and journalists are asking him, you know, why is everybody laughing at your idea? And he says, well, they've got low self-esteem. That was his diagnosis of the problem of all these journalists. But then three years later, he, he says, listen, you know, we, we've been looking into this for three years now. We've actually recruited you know, a raft of professors from the University of California system to do some proper hard 
data analysis on this and, and we found that it's true that actually self-esteem is this social vaccine and by increasing self-esteem we are going to have all these amazing effects so you know people are amazed they can't believe it but it, this story goes around the world it becomes this almost like a it goes viral in in a sense, you know. In, you know, Oprah right. starts talking about it. Oprah Oprah says that self esteem is going to be the catch-all phrase of the nineteen nineties. Mm-hmm. It goes everywhere, and it changes the way we raised our children. It changes the way we teach our children. And you know, I went through the, I tracked down former members of the task force, and I and I went through all their documentation, you know, years of archives. And, and what I found was something extraordinary was that actually it was that, that Vasconcellos knew that this was untrue. He, it was a, it was a lie, and he, uh, and he. When he told the the world and the world's media that the science had backed up what he'd been saying, he was lying about that. And in fact, I kind of interviewed one task force member who said he was there in the room when Vasconcellos saw this data for the first time. And he said, if the legislature find out what's in these reports, we're going to lose all our funding. And he said, as soon as that happened, it all started getting swept under the carpet. And... You know, what you see in in the psychological literature, you know, Gene Twenge very famously did all these analyses of narcissism in young people. And, you know, she's been attacked uh, by other people, lots of people who are kind of defensive of the millennial generation for claiming this. But I spend quite a lot of time in the book going through her data and also the arguments of her antagonists. And and I really think that she's absolutely right on this, is that what you see, as soon as this self-esteem idea starts becoming widespread rates in narcissism begin to wobble in young people and then in the early 90s they start going up and they carry on going up and up and up through the 90s into the 2000s and in fact there was a very recent study from the University of Amsterdam a big study they actually um, worked with 500 different families and they rated each family each kind of parental style and they and they, and they measured the kind of self-esteem narcissistic kind of levels in their children and what they found was that in the parents that had a, had a parental style which they described as parental over praise right so they were telling their children they're amazing and special and wonderful uh-huh, right they saw rates in narcissism in their children rise every six months that they went to visit so i think it's a really powerful thing and of course it would be amazing if it didn't have an effect it changed our culture as i'm sure mm-hmm. everybody who lived through it can recognize you're listening to innovation hub i'm kara miller i'm talking with will store he's the author of the book selfie how we became self-obsessed and what it's doing to us so Contrast that uh, movement of the 80s and 90s, this idea of like of self-esteem with uh, technology, because obviously people who were kids in the 80s and 90s way came way before Facebook. It was not Facebook. um, And even, you know, the title of your book is Selfie. And when people think about selfies, what do they think about? But technology and selfie sticks. Right. And things that that didn't exist before a few years ago. So and I think a lot of people would think. If they did think that, you know, this moment in time is a moment of narcissism, they would Mm. think the reason is, is because Twitter and Facebook and selfies and this and that. Do you think we're off the mark on that? Or is that true, too? Yeah, I I do. Because I think that that what you see very clearly is that it isn't that Twitter and and selfie cameras that are causing these things. It's that people are choosing to use these things. I mean, Silicon Valley threw up dozens of ideas a day you could say easily uh, it's the people that choose which ones work i mean don't mm-hmm. forget twitter was conceived as a, as a service for free text messages sms messages the selfie camera when it was launched by apple was conceived as a as something to use with facetime it was launched as the front facing camera and it was pitched as something that you can use for skype phones or facetime calls it was us the people that decided to use twitter for what it became it was us right the people to, to that stand in to front use... and the selfie sticks to stand in front of the yeah. Eiffel tower and yeah. 
yeah, stuff. so Silicon Valley yeah. don't control us. We control Silicon yeah. Valley as a people. Right. We we decide w- which of their ideas work, and we decide how we use their ideas. I mean, they're constantly running after us, trying to second guess what we want and give it to us. That's kind of how it's working. And don't forget with the timings things. You know, the self esteem movement I think informed the generation of parents, and so the millennials that got was the victims of all this. And so you, you know, you do see this narcissism continuing to go up throughout you know into the twenty first century too. So so that self esteem movement has a long tail. I think it's kind of it seems to be kind of leveling off now, though the rise. But it's you know it's obviously higher than it was, but it stopped rising. I think especially since the end of the financial crisis, which is quite interesting. But we, I don't think people have quite worked out why or how or what's quite going on in that data yet. So let me ask you about then the layering on of technology, and the and it really is layering because you know movies, which are, are certainly a big important technology um, in the world, have been around for. A hundred plus years at this point, uh, you know, TV, maybe 70 ish years in a big way, 60 years. And then obviously the Internet really has only had a real big effect maybe for 20 ish years. Do you feel like technology has changed our sense of self, our uh, push towards perfectionism? What is the impact? Yeah, so focusing on the self-esteem movement, that's, that's one effect. I think there's another two really important ones. And, of course, the major one is the economy. That's the big one. But as you point out, the other third one is the internet and it's social media. Right. So right. if you're talking about sort of rising levels of perfection and, again, that definition of perfectionism, which is we're sensitive to signals of failure in the environment. It, it, so social media has given us lots and lots more reasons to feel like failures, especially sort of young people. So one of the fundamental ways the brain works out how we're doing in life, how successful we are, how good we should feel about ourselves, is it, is it compared? ourselves to the people around us so back again back when we were evolving we'd have been surrounded by not that many people human tribes were around 150 but those right. we'd never have been with all of those people at once would have been with our sort of close kin but today of course we're on social media and we're surrounded by you know like we go through instagram there's kim kardashian there's jennifer lawrence there's beyonce look and there's me you know like we're you know we're all <laughs> in the age of kind of social media and reality sure. tv it's not like stars like they were 100 years ago stars are uh, kind of in vertical almost just like us and the mm-hmm. kind of toxic thing about this is it's unconscious you know so it's, there's that there's also the fact that psychologists call this perfectionist presentation people deliberately put their most perfect moments from their lives onto social media to you know, mm-hmm. to show people. And even right. though that we know consciously that that's what they're doing, and even though that we know consciously that some of these Hollywood stars will be full of plastic surgery and have zillions of stylists and probably, you know, et cetera, right. unconsciously it still hits us. It still affects us. Right. It still makes us feel bad. Right. But then there's also the wider sort of tribal stuff too. You know, we're still ineffably a tribal species. And you see social media has enabled us to be tribal in a way that we've never been able to be tribal before. You know, so tribes can connect and gather on Twitter, gather on Facebook. And one of the ways that kind of tribal psychology kind of triggers into something dangerous and unpleasant is with, you know, kind of moral outrage. So when we experience a member of another tribe transgressing our tribal codes, we feel moral outrage, which is this very ancient uh, you know, tribal emotion, and that motivates us to act. It motivates us to want to kind of strike out, to ostracize, to rage, to deal with that situation. So there's this huge pressure at the moment that you have to have exactly the right political views, and woe betide you if you don't. So it's yet another layer of pressure that, that is on the shoulders of people and making them feel that they have to be constantly perfect. 
Let me take a step back from all this because, you know, we're talking about this culture of being obsessed with the self. And I think that's in some ways not um, a view that's probably so distant from what a lot of people think about the world today. But one of the things you say that really struck me is that even though we tend to be naturally selfish, obviously we want things for ourselves and, and position for ourselves, when humans use the word good uh, to describe somebody, what they really mean is that the person is selfless. How do you reconcile that? And that, like, we want this thing, which is like, we want to be at the top of the heap and whatever, but we really value people who will give something up. That's a really good question. And it goes down to our evolutionary times. For 99% of the time that we've been roaming the earth, we've not been living in these sophisticated towns and cities. We've been living in large hunter-gatherer trials that have been roaming around the earth trying to survive. Right. Life was really hard back then. And, you know, you had to police a tribe. So how did we how did we police a tribe back then? You know, how did we mm-hmm. c- control it and make sure that people were not being uh, selfish? And, and so, you know, one of the ways that we do it was, was you know, we gossip, we tell stories about people. And uh, a lot of those stories would revolve around uh, you know, people being selfish or selfless because the kind of uh, behavior that w- we would have had to have encouraged in the tribe was selfless behavior because that's the kind of behavior that would have kept the tribe going. And so selfless behavior becomes heroic behavior. Mm. You know, and I think that I make the argument that kind of all modern storytelling probably emerges from that tribal gossip because what do we mm-hmm. see over and over and over again in stories is that is that heroes behave selflessly somehow right, and villains right. behave selfishly somehow. And, right, and, right. and it's, it's almost mm-hmm. as if tri- stories is kind of tribal propaganda. A, a final question for you. I know you've talked about how you uh, have had perfectionist tendencies and like we all do when you said like sometimes I w- walk by, you know, a car in the parking lot or the window of a store and I catch my reflection and I think, hmm. How am I looking today? Not not the best, you know, or whatever, <laughs> which we all do. We all do. Um, do you feel like your perfectionist tendencies have gotten worse since writing a book about the self or they're getting a little better? No, they're getting better. And I can tell you exactly okay. why. I discovered the, the, the stories that a culture tells itself are really important. And it, the story that the, you know, this sort of neoliberal West tells itself is, 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 well, it's everywhere. You can do what you want. You can be whoever you want to want to be. You just got to go for your dreams and you'll make it. And, 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 it's, and it's this kind of humanistic psychology idea as well of this idea of infinite potential, infinite capacity to transform into whoever we want to be. And also, you know, and it, and it produces this kind of hero idea and the hero that the neoliberal kind of economy throws up is this 20-something-year-old with a flat stomach and they're surrounded by friends and they're really funny and, um, you know, they go to lots of parties. <laughs> this individual, and that, that was the person right. I always wanted to be. And I always kind of right. struggled to kind of keep friends. I always felt very antisocial and... I would beat myself up. I'd be like, there's something wrong with me. There's something, I'm broken in some way that I'm not this person from friends, you know. Um, and, and, then, and then you discover the kind of what, you know, what, what psychologists have known for a long time. And, and that this idea of infinite capacity to transform is just not true. You know, so personality psychologists talk about these five levels of, on which we, our personalities 
kind of go backwards and forwards, the most famous of which, of course, being introverse, introversion to extroversion. Mm-hmm. And what they say is that, A, they, they are heavily biological. They're not wholly biological, but they're, they're partly a product of our genes. But most of the rest of what they are is a product of our early life experiences over which we have no control. So as soon as we're kind of in our mid-20s, we have our personality. And although it might change, it will change a bit as we go, as we go through our, our life, and it can always break if we go through a tremendously traumatic experience. This idea that we can transform who we are by sheer act of will is simply not true. And mm. so I mean, what you discover is that this story that we're constantly told is a lie. This hero, this ideal character that we're constantly taunted with is an impossible dream. And, and, and actually, what I discovered was, was that I'm not broken. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just high in, I'm low in extroversion, which means I'm an introvert. And I'm also high in neuroticism, which means that this low self-esteem thing is pretty much embedded in my head and there's not much I'm ever going to be able to do about it. So, you know, what, it's kind of depressing when you first find that out, but it ends up being very liberating because it's like for the first time in my life, I feel like I'm not actually broken. It's just that there are different kinds of humans and I happen to be this particular kind of human. And now I can finally, after decades of doing so, stop beating myself up for not being the person who I feel like my culture wants me to be. Will Storr is the author of Selfie, How We Became Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us. Will, this was a super interesting conversation. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thanks very much. On our website, we've got a past interview that might interest you. It's with psychologist Hazel Marcus, who has spent years studying the self in cultures across the world. That's at innovationhub.org. 